Special thank you as always to Isaac for setting everything up. I am lacking the microphone. Thank you for the reminder. <coughs> Special thank you as well to Taroni Time for sharing this class as well as hundreds of thousands of others with uh, those who cannot be here this evening. Topic this evening is 2020 vision. This is our first class of new secular year, 2020. And we do find ourselves in a time where I think we could all safely say there's a lack of clarity. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of deceit in the political realm and the moral realm. Everywhere we turn, the world becomes more and more vague and blurry. And the clarity that we once had becomes harder and harder to hold on to. But I think going into the new secular year, to be able to inspire ourselves through learning about a Torah personality, his yard site was last week, a personality that really revolutionized the world of Musser and the world of, uh, of Shmuzin, the idea of giving ethical discourses, a personality who was one of the builders of the Mir Yeshiva and also really a creator of so many amazing Talmidim and future Marbitze Torah, people who are now in the world inspiring others. So tonight is going to be a focus on the great personality of Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. We have at the end of the Parsha, it speaks about the death of Yaakov Avinu. But we know the Torah never says explicitly that Yaakov dies, and the Gemara and Tainus tells us that Yaakov Avinu Lomes, Yaakov never actually died. So the Gemara has bothered by the question, what are you talking about? If you read the Psukim carefully, or even not that carefully, it says that they embalmed him, and then they buried him, and they eulogized him. Why were they mummifying someone who was not dead? How in the world can you say Yaakov Avinu Lomes? And the Gemara goes on to prove, based on a Pasuk, a Drasha, that uh, no, on some level, what exactly it means is a whole discussion with many different Mepharshim, many different commentaries, but on some level, Yaakov never died. The approach of the Ramban is that this idea of a tzaddik living forever is not unique to Yaakov Avinu. But anyone who lives his life in righteousness, we can say about that person that Lomes, they never died, and spiritually they are alive, they are vibrant, and they are living through the Torah that they've shared. The uh, Gemara Nyavamos tells us in Davtsadi Zion that whenever we quote Torah in the name of the person who said it, Svasav Dovos Bekever, his lips are moving in the grave. It's as if we're bringing that person to life in a more real way by quoting their Torah and sharing some of their insights on life and the world. So tonight in Mitzvah Shem, I'd like to delve into some of the different aspects of Rav Chaim Shmuel Levitz, a little bit of a historical background and focus on some of the main hashkafos, the main, uh, I guess, contributions that he gave to the Torah world. Rechaim Shmulevitz was born on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in 1902 in Kovna, Lithuania, 
to his father, Reb Rafal Alter Shmulevitz, who was the great Rosh Hashiva in Grodna, and his mother, Etel. Etel was actually the daughter of the Alter of Navardic, Reb Yosef Horwitz. So he came from a prestigious family at his bris. The sandak at his bris was none other than Reb Yitzchak Blazer, otherwise known as Reb Itzela Petterberger. He was one of the three main disciples of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. So literally he was brought up on the lap of the Balei Musser, of the great Musser giants. <clears throat> now what I'd like to get into is a few different aspects of his personality. His commitment to learning, his unwavering obsession with Limud HaTorah, his avas HaTorah, his love for Torah, his passion for learning, and at the same time, his avas habrios, his love for humanity. Sometimes those things can be in conflict. If I'm so engrossed in my learning, I might not be as focused on the person sitting next to me. And on the other hand, if I'm always looking to do the chesed and wanting to offer my services and be a mensch, so I might not have that same fire when it comes to learning. But to have a real avas Torah, a love of Torah, and a real avas habrios, a love of humanity, when they go together, they create a magnificent human being. I want to touch upon his hasmada. Hasmada literally comes from the word tamid, always learning, his diligence, his total immersion in Torah. But at the same time, his menuchas hanefesh his sense of serenity, his sense of tranquility, which also don't always go together. Sometimes the person who is so intensely focused on learning might be a very intense person in general. And the guy who's more chilled out, laid back, you know, relaxed, so they might not have that same gusto, they might not have that same push and drive and sense of urgency when it comes to learning. Again, to have both of those qualities, a hasmada, a total commitment and devotion to learning as much as humanly possible, but everything with the shalva, with the manukas and nefesh, with the serenity, is also a very unique, special combination. I want to touch upon the world of hargasha, the world of emotion. Chaim Shmulevitz was known from many different Talmidim describing their perception of their Rebbe as a human being who was a Baal Hergish, someone who could really feel the joy and the pain and the, the experience of someone else. And last but not least, I want to focus on the secret. What was the secret to his amazing accomplishments in Torah? Now for us to really know the answer to that question would be absurd. It's like we're standing here talking about Malachim. You know, what's the secret to the Malach Gavriel? This is totally above and beyond our pay grade. But to at least share some insights into who he was as a person and what he stood for as a Torah leader and a Torah giant. Tragically, when he was 17 years old in 1919, his father, who was a Rosh Hashiva, as we mentioned, he passed away. He was not yet 40 years old. And his mother, within the same year, passed away as well, leaving little Chaim and his younger brother Shlomo and his two sisters as orphans. In the introduction to the Share Chaim, the Sefer of Rav Chaim Shmulevitz's Chedushim, his insights into different Talmudic passages, the introduction was actually written by one of his sons, Rev. Rifal, who was named after Chaim's father. 
And he says, in this Sefer that I'm now publishing of my father's Chidushim, I want this to be a monument for Avi Abba, the father of my father, Hagon HaTzadik Reb Rafal Alter Zecher Tzadik Kodesh Lavracha, who was the Rosh Hashiv in Grodna, who passed away when he was a young man in Tuf Reish Ayin in 1919, before he was 40 years old. But nonetheless, although he was so young, he was known throughout the world as a Gon Otsum Vitzadik Nisgov, as a brilliant mind and a righteous man. And many of my grandfather's chedushim, of his insights, are interwoven within my father's insights. And he goes on to say, I also want to establish this sefer as a matseva, as a monument for my grandmother, for my father's mother, Ethel, who was the daughter of Rav Yosef Yosef Horowitz, the great altar of Navardic. She herself was a tremendous tzaddikis, and this should be le'ilui nishmasa. The, the love and the respect and the reverence that Rav Chaim had for his father was really seen in everything that he did. During the Six-Day War, when he was in Yerushalayim, and they were within range of the Jordanian rockets, he had a, a cousin where he was going back to America, Rav Avram Yafin, and he wanted to give his manuscripts he had from his father to Rabbi Avram Yafin. And he said, please guard these with your life. I'm not sure how safe they're going to be here in Yerushalayim, but take them with you to America. Das is mein ganze Leben. This is my entire life right here. And that's how much he cherished the insights of his father. As the eldest in the family, he felt this overwhelming responsibility to make sure there was Parnassah, to make sure he could take care of the family financially. So he went out and uh, he was a merchant. He sold things during the day, tried to make a few dollars. But his brother Shlomo says, that was only during the day. When he came home, I never saw him sleep. All throughout the evening, he would be sitting there with a pen and paper, writing down his chedushim, recording his insights that he was thinking about all day when he was out selling shoes. There's a famous piece in the Nefesh HaChayim, Chaim Melozhener, where he talks about the debate between Rabbi Yishmol and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as to what's the, uh, the ideal way of living life. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was of the opinion, Kulo Torah, just learn, don't worry about making a Parnassah. If you're sincere, if you're genuine, Hashem will support you. And Rabbi Shmuel was of the opinion, you have to have derech eretz, you have to also do something, do some basic ishtadlus. And it's clear from the Gemara that for most of us mortal human beings, we have to follow the advice of Rabbi Shmuel. But says Rabbi Nefet, says the Rechaim Velazhin, what exactly did Rabbi Shmuel say? He said, You should work within them derech eretz. Which means, not that I should totally abandon Torah and not be thinking about the Gemara for the next eight hours as I'm working, but that while I'm working, obviously I'm still within the world of Torah. That's my machshava, that's my thought, that's my focus, that's my obsession throughout the day. That was lived by Ruchaim Shmulevitz. So when his father passed away, Reb Shimon Shkap, Right, one of the great Gaonim of the time, he took over the yeshiva in Grodna, he became the Rosh Yeshiva. 
Reb Shimon Shkup was very fond of Reb Chaim, and by the time Reb Chaim was 18, he appointed him as one of the Magide Shir, one of the people who would give lectures in the yeshiva. And many of the older accomplished Talmudic Chachamim, they were a little bit surprised by that choice. Everybody knew that little Chaim was brilliant and he had a lot of potential. But if you're trying to choose a Magid Shir, there are so many extremely brilliant people out there who've been doing this for decades. So they asked him, Shimon Shkrup, why are you choosing Reb Chaim? And he answered like this. Some of this information comes from a beautiful Sefer, Sefer Pirkei Chaim, which was authored by um, Rav Yitzchak Matis Yohu Tannenbaum, which is a nice biography in Rav Chaim Shmolevitz. He says that Rav Shimon Shkup responded, It's true, there are many people out there who I'm sure can give a magnificent, brilliant, organized cheer. However, but nobody out there has the ability to instill the Avas HaTorah, the love of Torah, like Reb Chaim. He was 18 years old. But there was something that was just exuding from his personality, almost jumping out of his neshama, his love in Devekis to Torah, and that was contagious. Reb Shimon Shkab said, I need him in my yeshiva, I need him as one of the Rebbeim. When Reb Chaim was 22, he made the decision to travel from Grodna to the Mir Yeshiva. He led a group of young men together with him. The Mir was led by the, the great Mir Rosh Yeshiva, Reb Eliezer Yehuda Finkel, otherwise known as Reb Eliezer Yudel. And as soon as he got to the mirror, his reputation preceded him and uh, only took him a couple weeks to really rise to the top. And he got a very, very special welcome from Rabbi Lazar Yudel and they became very close. In one of the shmuzin, right, the famous sefer, Sichos Musser, some of the famous shmuzin from Chaim Shmulevitz that he actually gave on the yard site of Rabbi Lazar Yudel, he speaks about his great Rebbe, the Meshashiva of the Mir. This is source number four. Chaim says, Nisbonin b'mahaya kocho gadol ve'eich kolzos. Let's think for a moment. How was Rebbe Lezer Yudel so incredibly successful? How did he build the Mir Yeshiva? How did he create these, these unbelievable Talmidim? So Chaim quotes the Mishnah in Perkeyavos. Mishnah says, we should strive to be like the disciples of Aram HaKohen. Ohev Shalom v'rodev Shalom. Ohev Esabrios and Makarvan LaTorah. To love humanity and to bring them close to Torah. The Rambam famously explains, what did Aaron do that was so special, that was so incredibly unique? If you saw there was somebody struggling with his Yetzirah, and he knew that he was getting involved with things that a good Jewish boy should not be getting involved with. So he didn't go over to him and chastise him or rebuke him, but rather he became his friend and he showered him with love. It wasn't fake, he wasn't putting on a show, but he genuinely became his friend. Now the hashpa, the inspiration of feeling that Aaron HaKohen is my friend, is that next time I have this particular challenge or this particular struggle or a taiva pushing me or pulling me in any direction away from Torah, what do I think to myself? I think if Aaron only knew 
what I would be doing right now if I actually chose to do this, he would be so incredibly disappointed. He might not view me in the same way. And therefore, because I know that Aaron is machshev me, he respects me, and he's my friend, I'm going to hold myself back. I'm not going to allow myself to say something or do something I feel is inappropriate. So explains to Chaim Shmulev, it's based on that Rambam. What we see from here is, when the Mishnah says there are two separate things, to love humanity, and bring them close to Torah, it's really all the exact same concept. How do you bring people close to Torah? How are we makarev people? If it's Jews who have very little exposure to Judaism and you want to be makarev rachokim, or it's Jews that have been brought up within the system and you want to be makarev krovim, bringing people closer, how do you do that? What's the magic formula? Ohev esabrios. If you really love them, you really respect them, that itself will have the power to bring them closer to Torah. So said Reb Chaim Shmulevitz about his great Rebbe, Reb Lezer Yudol, that was the koach, that was his magic in building the Mir Yeshiva. That we mentioned some time ago with Reb Nassim Svi Finkel, who became Rosh Yeshiva of Mir later on. So Reb Nassim Svi, we know, was born and raised in Chicago. And his family had a lot of mishpacha, a lot of very prestigious family in Eretz Yisrael. And they went for a visit when Reb Nassim Svi was 14 years old. And they were visiting Uncle Lazar Yudel. And after a couple days together in Yerushalayim, Reb Lazar Yudel had a conversation with Reb Nassim Svi's mother, and he basically said, I think you should leave him here with us. Don't bring it back to Chicago. Forget about high school over there. Let him join the Mir Yeshiva. This young man has so much incredible potential. There's so much waiting for him. Let him stay here under my guidance. And her first thought, she writes, was absolutely not. I'm not going to leave my boy here in the middle of uh, Israel. But her response was, with respect, I have to think about it. I'm not sure. I'll speak to my husband. I don't know. Rev. Lazar Yudel, though, was uh, persistent. And basically, he got them to agree to allow little Nassim Svi, 14 years old, to stay in the mirror. And he was there for eight months at that time. Eventually, he did go back to Chicago. He finished high school. But then after high school was over, he went straight back to the mirror. And that's really, that was a whole new chapter in his life. When he got back to the mirror, he was staying with Rebbe Lezer Yudel, his great uncle. And he says that he remembers it was the first morning, and it was extremely early in the morning, probably 4, 4.30, and he hears some rumbling going on downstairs. He was curious, what's going on? So he gets out of his room, and he takes a peek, and he sees Rebbe Lezer Yudel is standing in front of his shas. Right, his entire shas is there in the bookshelf. He has two arms and he starts embracing his shas and he says, this is mine. This is mine. Right, what, what a way to wake up in the morning. <laughs> it was him expressing his avas Torah, his love and his passion for Torah, that he would embrace his shas every morning. That was the first thing he did. 
I want to speak about the hasmada, the diligence, the consistency in learning that was unique with Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. In the Sefer Perkei Chaim, it says that Eitzel Rabbeinu lo musag shel sheina. When it came to Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, there was really no such concept as sleep. Anyone who has small children could also relate to that idea. No concept of sleep. He would be learning for hours and hours straight, and sometimes he would doze off on his shtender when he got overly tired. But his Torah, his awesome breadth of Torah, and his rich depth of Torah, with his midos, with his character, that didn't just come naturally, it was he acquired it with toil, with effort, with sweat, blood, and tears. He'd be learning a Rashba. And he couldn't figure out Pshat. He couldn't understand what's going on. How is the answer answering the question? How does that fit with that step of the Gemara? And he had such a chachma, such a desire for wisdom, and that searching for truth, he couldn't allow himself to leave the seat, to go to sleep. He could be there for days straight sometimes. Total immersion. When he was a young boy, he would actually have his Friday night Shabbos meal at the home of Rabbi Yeruchim Levavitz. He was the great Mashkiach of Mir, right, the spiritual leader. And they developed also a very strong, very close relationship. What would usually happen is Rabbi Yeruchim would give a shmuz to the Talmidim after the Friday night meal. But he noticed that Rav Chaim was so incredibly engrossed in his own Torah thoughts that even during the shmuz, he could tell he wasn't fully paying attention. He was going through the Rashba, he was reviewing the Rebbe Kiva Eger, he was trying to answer the question of the Ketzos, whatever was on his mind. So Yeruchim eventually told him, listen, Chaim, you're probably better off just going to the base Medrash, you could learn there. No need for you to be sitting here and trying to review in your head. Obviously, he encouraged the boys to take breaks. There's something called Bein Hazmanim, right? The, uh, the intercession. However, he himself would always say, it's so hard for me to relate to that concept of Bein Hazmanim. Because in his view, in, in his heart, the learning was life itself. And just like I'm not going to say, you know what, I'm going to take a break from life although sometimes that might be somewhat attractive, right? But there's no such thing as taking a break from life. How can you take a break from learning? That was the hasoga, that was the mindset of Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. But the incredible thing was, although he was so intense and committed and diligent in his learning, there was always a menucha senefesh, there was a serenity, there was a tranquility, there was a calmness of his spirit. There's a, a sefer that's been out now for a few years, Sichos Reb Nassim Svi, Reb Nassim Svi Finkel, his shmuzin that he gave in the Mir Yeshiva. So in source number six, he recalls, he has a memory of seeing Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. He writes, Ani zocher eich moron rosh yeshiva hagon Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. I remember seeing him learning after Shachris on Shabbos. 
When everyone went downstairs for Kiddush, he would sit there towards the front of the, the base Madrash by the window with the natural light coming in. He would pick up his long coat, he would sit down, and he would begin to learn. In his recollection of Chaim Shmulevitz, he was so incredibly engaged in his learning, he didn't even see people standing around him. He was able to get into that world, almost the form of meditation. It was a trance. His whole being was saturated with Torah. And when I saw his face, I saw this calmness, this tranquility, this peacefulness that was so incredibly beautiful. Zuhi shalva mitis. If you want real tranquility, when you're in the world of Torah, when you're in that zone, there's no manuchas hanefesh as beautiful as that. And then Reb Nassim Svi parenthetically goes on to say about himself. He says, Eliza ma'at gaiva, l'saper al atmi. Perhaps it's a little bit arrogant to speak about myself, but trust me, there was no even a tiny microscopic aspect of arrogance Reb Nassim Svi Finkel. But he said, I remember there were six weeks when I was in yeshiva, where I was able to attain that kind of feeling. Six weeks of just delving into a sugi, a particular area, it was the Gemark Supas and Daftes, and it was just like I was in a different plane, it was a different universe. I'm sure he had many more than six weeks of real, hardcore, uninterrupted learning, but that was kind of the highlight in his own assessment. Now it's interesting when Reb Chaim Shmulevitz spoke about the need to learn and learn more, it was never about taking more hours of the day to learn. It was always about the intensity, the quality of the learning, which is such a crucial point because so often you'll have young men who are starting off their yeshiva career and everybody wants to be maximizing their potential and showing the world how great they could be. I want to be the last guy to leave the base medrash at night. But if my hasmada, if my diligence in learning is, I got to make sure that I'm here until 12.15, that could be extremely unhealthy and that could burn you out. If the reason why I happen to be here until 12.15 is because how could I go to sleep without answering the Rashba? How could I leave without understanding what Tostas is saying? It's an overwhelming curiosity. One of my Rebbeim used to say, it's like being a kid in the candy store. If that's where it's coming from, that could be an extremely healthy expression of total commitment to Torah. That's what he would talk about getting into it qualitatively and obviously that means I'll be learning more but it's not about making sure I'm here for eight hours straight. He gave the mushal one time, he gave the analogy this is when he was a younger man in yeshiva and it happened to be Rilezer Yudel was actually listening to this shmooze. So he said as follows he said if you have a pot or a kettle and you place it on the fire and it's getting hotter and hotter up to 200 degrees and then you take it off and it cools down immediately then you put it back on 
and it goes back up to about 200, and you take it off again. If you keep on doing that, it will always be very hot, but it will never reach its boiling point. His application was, when it comes to learning, or when it comes to any area of spiritual growth, we're striving, we're pushing through particular limitations, if you stop before you're maximizing your kohos, before I'm pushing with everything that I have, every fiber of my being, I'm never going to get to the boiling point. But he explained, if you get there even once in your life, forever you're a different human being. Now it's boiled water. No matter how cold it gets later, it's boiled water. As he was saying, the shmuz, or laser yudel, turned to the person sitting next to him and he said, Trust me, Reb Chaim is speaking about himself. He lives roschin. He lives a life of boiling water. Reb Shach, who was the leader of the generation, he said about Reb Chaim that he was the mas midhador. He was the one who would hold up the world with his continuous learning. Because of his interest, because of his curiosity, and because of his commitment to learning, he knew everything. He was known for his awesome bikiyas. Bikiyas meaning having so much information from all different areas of Torah, Talmud Bavli, Yerushalmi, Chazal, obscure Midrashim, everything that was out there in print and more, he somehow had it in his mind, and it wasn't because of his brilliance alone, it was because of his need to always review. Talmudim would say they would watch Rav Chaim go up to the bookshelf, he would take a particular sefer that he was interested in, and he would stand there sometimes for hours going through the book cover to cover, and then reviewing it a few times until he put it back to make sure he had a real acquisition of that information. He walks in to the house of Rav Chaim Ozer. Rav Chaim Ozer was the Godel Hador in uh, Vilna, and Rav Chaim Ozer was having a conversation with Rav Shimon Shkup. Rav Shimon Shkup, right, the great mind who took over the yeshiva after his father passed away. And to the surprise of many who were there in the room, Rav Chaim Ozer, who was a much older man than Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, he stood up from his chair, mole komoso, all the way, as uh, showing respect. And he explained. He said, when the entire library of the Mir Yeshiva walks into your office, you should stand up. That was with Chaim Shmolevitz. What was his secret? Obviously, the real answer is we have no clue. But I will share with you something that I feel is extremely powerful. One of the shmuzin of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz that I think gives us a little bit of an insight into his own accomplishments in life and learning at Musr. The Torah tells us that when Yaakov went to the well, before he met Rachel, and all the shepherds were hanging out and schmoozing, and he was wondering, why don't you just move the rock from on top of the well and feed all the sheep? What's going on? And they explain, we have to wait till all the different groups get here because it's so incredibly heavy and only together as a team can we push off the stone. Fine. Then the Pasuk says that Yaakov sees Rachel, and single-handedly he's able to push the stone off of the well. Rashi tells us what exactly is the Torah teaching 
by uh, giving us this insight into Yaakov. Says Rashi, you should first of all know it didn't require much effort. It was just like someone taking out the, uh, the, the stopper of a barrel. You pull it out, no big deal. The Torah is informing us that Yaakov had tremendous strength. So it's kind of a strange Rashi. If you were to list the top 20 values that we have in Yiddishkeit, that we have in Judaism, where would Kocho Gadol fit in? Number one, number five, and it probably would not be on the list of our top values. Chesed, Chachma, different Midos, generosity, and being really strong, having biceps that are like this big. We don't care about these things. We're not known for our athletic abilities. So what does it mean that the Torah is teaching us that Yaakov had koach gadol? So Chaim Shmulevitz was bothered by this question, and he said, if you take a look at Tefillah's Geshem, the bracha we say, when we daven for rain, that Hashem should give us rain, that should be for bracha, and we list different things, different schusim, as to why we feel we should merit receiving rain. One thing we say is, we reference back to this point in history with Yaakov. Yichad leiv mipi mayim, that literally he was meyached leiv, he unified his heart to remove the stone from on top of the water. Ba'avuro al mayim, and therefore because of him, in that merit, don't hold back the rain. So we're saying, Hashem, because Yaakov happened to be a strong person, therefore give us rain. So clearly there's a lot more here than physical strength. Rechaim Shmulevitz pointed to the phrase, Yichad Leiv. It doesn't just say that Yaakov removed the stone from on top of the be'er, from the well, but the prerequisite was, Yichad Leiv, he was able to unify his heart, which means he was totally focused. He was totally um, absorbed in that particular moment, channeling all of his energies, every fiber of his being for the task at hand. That allowed him to do something that was supernatural. It wasn't that he was a strong person. Maybe he was a weak person. He was sitting all day learning. He probably wasn't that strong. But the Yichud Leiv was able to give him supernatural abilities. Chaim Levitz actually says, that's how we understand the famous story in the Gemara Bab Metziah. The Gemara says, the origins of Reish Lakish. He started off as a, as a Ganav. He was a bandit. And then one day he sees there's someone bathing in the lake and he assumes that it's a woman. So being a very athletic person, he jumps onto a tree and then swings from a branch and goes into the water. And Rav Yochanan turns around and he realizes that it's actually Rabbi Yochanan. So he says to Rabbi Yochanan, this is strange, you have a resemblance to a woman. And Rabbi Yochanan said back to Rish Lakish, you should know my sister is more beautiful than I am. And if you'd like to marry her, obviously with her consent, I'd gladly uh, make the shidduch on one condition. 
that you accept upon yourself a life of learning Torah. I see you have tremendous potential, and I'd love to make the shidduch. Just be makabal, just accept upon yourself that you're going to learn from now on. He said, deal. He tries to jump back out of the water, as many of us know the story, and he can no longer jump. Right? The classic white man syndrome, my back is hurting, my knees are not working well, he can't do anything anymore. What happened? So the Gemara says, because we know that Torah can diminish the strength of a person. Now, if a person is learning for 20 years, and he's not exercising, he's not moving around, he's just sitting hunched over, so yeah, you're probably not going to be in the best shape. In contrast to someone else who exercises four hours a day and has special protein shakes, they're going to be in much better shape than you will be. However, in this particular case, Rechaim Shmulevitz was bothered by the question, he didn't do anything yet. He didn't change his lifestyle. He didn't start learning. So he explained, Torah doesn't directly weaken the person. The reason why he was so incredibly talented beforehand is because he had yichud leif, he had total devotion to, to his athletic prowess, to his ability to jump high and run fast. He was an athlete. And that's why he was able to do incredible things, because that was his whole life. As soon as he accepted the old Torah, the yoke of Torah, so then he no longer had yichud leiv in that direction. He couldn't do what he did before. Perhaps the secret, at least to some aspect of the greatness of Rechaim Shmulevitz, what he accomplished in Torah and Musr, was his yichud halev, his total singular devotion, pushing beyond any normal human boundaries. <clears throat> Many of us were inspired by the Daf Yomi, the Siyum Hashas, and some people started the new cycle of Daf Yomi, others began other learning initiatives. I think one thing is extremely clear, that the goal and, and, the, and that feeling of wanting to learn more, but not just learning something going in one ear at the other. Somebody told me, he said, I was thinking of doing Daf Yomi, but I realized, like, I've tried it before. I sit there, I listen to the, the class for 45 minutes. The person is running through the daf. And I feel like, he said, I wish I could say it goes in one ear and out the other, but it doesn't even go in the first ear. So, like, I know that's not for me. So you've got to find what works for you, what's going to be qualitatively a good, solid program for learning. But whatever that is, the idea of quality, of making a kinyan, of acquiring that information through chazorah, through reviewing it, that was the life of Chaim Shmulevitz. He was constantly reviewing even the most basic Mishnayas and Gemaras that many of us have learned many times. For Chaim, there was never enough. You would always see him moving his lips saying the Gemara. And because of that, he had such a mastery. Often when he was giving a shear or a shmuz, he would have a sefer open in front of him just to have something to look at. But oftentimes the person sitting right here would see that he wasn't even on the right page because everything he was saying, he was saying by heart. It was all in his mind. 
The, uh, the Chafetz Chaim has an amazing sefer called Lakute Halachos, where basically he writes in his introduction that if you look throughout Shas, there are many mesechtes, many tractates that don't have the commentary of the riff. Right? The riff has a halachic um, summary of the Gemara, and there are many without the riffs. So the Chafetz Chaim says, Baruch Hashem, I'll make my own riff. And that's what he wrote, Lakute Halachos. In his introduction, he quotes from the verse in Mishlei composed by Shlomo HaMelech, where Shlomo writes, You, the Torah, are more precious to me than jewels, than diamonds, than gold. Nothing in the world compares to you. What a beautiful praise to the Torah. But the Chafetz Chaim is bothered by a pretty simple question. How can you even have the chutzpah, Shlomo HaMelech, to compare the Torah to jewelry? Right? Imagine telling that to a spouse. The 50th anniversary, the husband writes, you should know, honey, I love you more than $25,000. I love you more than, than $4 million. It's cheapening the relationship. What are you doing? How do you compare Torah, which is the source of all of the worlds and dimensions of reality, to, to stones and diamonds? That was the question of the Chafetz Chaim. So he said, in one aspect, Torah and jewelry are very similar. Usually the way it works is if you're weighing gold, the value of gold is based on how much it weighs. But it doesn't go up step by step. You could have gold that weighs five pounds and it's worth $10,000. And then you could have gold that's worth six, that weighs six pounds, but it's worth $40,000. So he says that's the, that's the analogy to gold or to silver. Torah works in the same way. It's not, well, every little bit that I learn or every depth of, of understanding that I gain, okay, it's a little bit more than I had before. It could be 1,000 times more valuable than what I had before. He says that's what the Gemara in Chagiga means. The Gemara says famously, Eino Doma. There's no comparison to the person who learns, who reviews 100 times, to the person who reviews 101 times. They're a different human being. The one who is lacking only the one time of Chazor or review, it's as if he never learned in contrast to you. Explains the Chafetz Chaim, because the way Torah learning and Torah living works, is every little drop of it can transform me. Every little drop can take me to a whole different rung of that ladder. Chaim Shmulevitz transformed himself and those around him through Yichud Lev, through his constant, unquenchable thirst to keep on pushing. Now we know during the 1940s, the Mir Yeshiva experienced really miracle after miracle. And they first moved from Mir to Vilna, and then in the late 1940s, hundreds of the Mir yeshiva students obtained visas, and they were able to travel via Siberia to Japan. They were first in Kobe, Japan for about six months, and then we know from Kobe, they traveled to Shanghai, and they spent the next five years in Shanghai. I was Zoha to have a Rebbe in uh, my first year after high school, I went to Eretz Yisrael and I was learning in the yeshiva there, Yeshiva's Chavetz Chaim, and Rabbi Avram Kenerik Shlita, he should live and be well. He's already an older man. 
but uh, he was part of the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai. And just hearing some of those stories, what that world was, what that, what that reality was, was so incredible. When they got there, Rav Lezer Yudel Finkel, who was the Rosh Hashiva again of Mir, he traveled to Eretz Yisrael to try to work on getting visas to bring the yeshiva from Japan to Eretz Yisrael. And in the meantime, he left Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, his son-in-law, in charge of the yeshiva, together with Reb Yechesko Levenstein. They were the ones who were running the yeshiva in Japan. Many of the boys in the yeshiva were orphaned. Many of their families were devastated, destroyed by the war. And Reb Chaim Shmulevitz became the father to hundreds of young men. And hearing stories from the Talmidim who were there at the time, of 24-7 care and concern and devotion and making sure they had enough to eat and making sure they had places to sleep. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz really took on a whole different role. He himself was actually able to get visas for his entire family years prior. He could have left to America and lived in some semblance of sanity, but he said, I will not leave my Talmidim. There is no way I'm going to leave the yeshiva. We're together, we're a mishpacha, we're a group. We came here together and we're going to leave together. In many of Reb Chaim Shmuzin, his discourses, he would talk about that incredible sense of community that existed within the yeshiva during those years of exile. In one particular shmuz, he quotes the Gemara in Brachos. The Gemara says, Whenever you're davening, you should make sure to daven with the congregation. And Rashi explains, don't just daven in a singular language, but daven in a plural language, because you're incorporating yourself with everybody else around you. And if you do that, explains Rashi, then your tefillah, then your prayer will be answered. And Rav Chaim Shmulevitz explained that Gemara. He says, what are you doing differently? You're still the same person. You still have the same merits. You're still saying the same words of davening. You happen to be with a group of people. But you see from this Gemara that your tefillah has been transformed radically because there's a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of achtos. There's a unity. One plus one does not equal two. But when you have a group of people working together, the power, the explosive nature of that tefillah is a whole different force. <clears throat> 1947, the yeshiva moved, as always, together, and this time they went to the United States. This is the famous story on the boat to America it was packed with immigrants of all backgrounds, and it was a very difficult uh, situation, it sounds like. Everyone was cramped on this boat, and Rav Chaim Shmulevitz had with him his Chef Shmaisa. Chef Shmaisa, for those of you who are familiar, is a very deep, elaborate work on, on Talmudic analysis. And he was sitting there engrossed in the Chef Shmaisa, and it's divided by chapters. You have Shmaisa Aleph, Shmaisa Bey, Shmaisa Gimel, etc. So someone walks over to Chaim, and he says, Anu, where are we holding? Obviously asking, how far away are we from America? And Reb Chaim looks up from his book and says, Shmaisa Gimel. Right? Shmaisa Gimel. That, that's everything. That was his world. That was his life. 
They were in America for six months and then they went back, they made their way to Eretz Yisrael, and that was really the beginning, again, under the guidance and leadership of Rav Lezer Yudol of the Mir in Eretz Yisrael. He was there for the next 32 years until his passing in 1978. 1964, he took over saying the weekly shmuzin, his Sunday night shmuz was popular throughout the entire city. People would flock to hear the, the pearls of wisdom from all backgrounds. Sophisticated Talmidei Chachamim would want to hear the, the shmuzin, the discourse of Rechaim Shmulevitz, and then young yeshiva guys, 16, 17, 18 years old. In the introduction to the Sichos Musr, where we have many of his shmuzin from 1971 to 1973. The introduction here is written by his son. He explains the style and the approach of his father in his shmuz. He said, my father had this uncanny ability to get into a chazal, if it's a gemara, if it's a medrash, able to uncover something that was there that most of us just don't see. It wasn't taking his own creative ideas and trying to somehow fit it with the words of the Medrash, but it was showing us this is all here. This is the Chachma, this is the wisdom of Chazal. This is what the Gemara is actually saying, opening our eyes to the context and the depth of the Gemara and relating it to our own lives in a very unique and novel way. The amazing thing about Rav Chaim is that not just his clarity or his organization, when he gave a shir in the yeshiva, he would quote off the cuff 20, 30 different sources. But the hargasha, the feeling that he had when he was delivering a shir, a shmuz, a vad, a small gathering, anyone there could feel that exactly what he was saying was how he was living. It wasn't preaching. It was just sharing his neshama with the people around him. And, and that makes all the difference in the world. You could have someone who's a wonderful performer. Might be brilliant, might be charismatic, but you're, you're putting on a show. And you could have someone else that might not be as eloquent, might not be as well-spoken, but it's just the outpouring of the neshama and it's coming from a place of authenticity. That moves me more than anything else. That was Rechaim Shmulevitz. He would usually pause a few minutes before starting his shmuz, and Revolba, Rishlama Volba explained, he wasn't pausing to gather his thoughts. He spent many hours doing that beforehand. He was extremely organized, like we mentioned. He was pausing to make sure that he was fully feeling the message he was about to impart to the yeshiva. Whatever I say has to be coming from the depths of the heart, otherwise it's not fully true. In the biography, Rav Tanenbaum says, Kasher Yoshev Im Talmidov, this is source number 16, when he would be sitting with his students, he'd be giving a musravad, talking about a particular topic of growth, or a particular midah, if he was speaking about humility or arrogance or anything else, and sanctity and purity, sometimes he would get so choked up and emotional by the message he was sharing, he couldn't even continue the speech. That's how real he was. He was a living Baal Hergish. 
to the point where his empathy really saw no bounds. In his older years, his family had to hide the Hamodia from Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, or at least cut out certain sections. Because what would happen? Like any news article you read, you're bound to hear something tragic, right? Khalila, there's a story about a soldier who was killed. What would he do? So most of us, we, we read it, oh, oh, nebuch, terrible, oh, gosh, okay. How'd the Lakers do last night, right? Chaim Shmulevitz. He would pause, and he would start going through what we call in the world of Musr, a koach He would make this whole illustration in his mind. Right? The soldier was killed. He would think about the mother. Said, the mama. Ay. Literally, a few minutes thinking about how the mother feels. And the father. Ay, the tata. Thinking about raising him as a child and then hearing this news and how he reacted and, and the siblings and the brother and the sister. and It, it was bad for his health. They had to hide the hamudia. I heard from a, a Choshev, very, very special, well-known Bechanech. He's an educator. He's a wonderful Torah teacher. And tragically, he lost a son when his son was five years old. And he was sitting Shiva in Eretz Yisrael. And there were hundreds of people that came to be Menachem Shiva, Menachem Avil. And he said, however, the one who gave me the most comfort was Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. What happened? He said, I was, I was sitting there and I saw that Rav Chaim Shmulevitz walked in and he took a seat towards the back of the room. And he sat there with his hand like this and he just started bawling, just crying, crying nonstop between 20 and 30 minutes. Then he got up, wiped off his tears, he came over, with this ava, with this love that was exuding. And he said, He said, he said nothing else besides that, but that was the greatest comfort I received. Feeling that he felt my pain. That's a Baal Hergish. That's someone who's living with emotion. The Raman Shulchan Aruch tells us in Simon Shin Zayin that on Shabbos we're not allowed to speak about Narishkeit, about what's happening in the world, about news. However, if that brings you oneg, if that brings you joy, so then you're allowed to speak about it technically because you could argue it's oneg Shabbos. Okay. However, the Ramah says, if you don't enjoy it, Right, this might be a good excuse for a husband. Honey, I would love to hear more about that, but it's Shabbos. <laughs> I'm not quite there. Okay. If you don't enjoy it, though, then you can't have a conversation with somebody even though they do enjoy it. However, the Mishnah Brewer says there's a caveat, which is, let's say I don't enjoy this particular subject, or I'm the wife hearing something about the 49ers. I could care less. I don't know if they're football or if they're hockey. I don't, I, don't, I don't care. But you're telling me something, you're excited about it. So says the Mishnah Baruah, if by me having a conversation with you, I'm getting oneg from the fact that you're getting oneg, I'm getting pleasure because I know that you're enjoying this, then it's permissible. 
That was Rav Chaim Shmulevitz in a nutshell. His life was always there to be mechazik, to give strength to others. He, he said a beautiful pshat, a beautiful interpretation where we had in last week's parsha the reunion between Yosef and Yaakov. And the Pasuk says, Vayera a love that Yosef appeared to Yaakov. And Rashi says that Yosef Nira El Aviv, just pointing out who's showing himself to whom. It was Yosef revealing himself to his father. Chaim Shmulevis was bothered by the question, why does Rashi have to say anything? When you're reading the Pasuk and you see the subject of the Pasuk, it sounds pretty clear. Yes, it's Yosef who is approaching Yaakov and they're about to hug and kiss and have this whole emotional reunion. What's Rashi adding that Yosef Nira El Aviv, Yosef allowed himself to appear to his father? Explain Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, and again, like many of his Shmuzan, if not all of them, this was an expression of his whole way of living. He said, Yosef was very excited to see his dad after 22 years. You could imagine and like we spoke about in Shabbos, it wasn't just a father missing, a son missing his father and a father missing his son, but Yosef was lacking that connection to Kedusha that he was brought up with. He was living in a world of impurity. He had such a strong desire to reunite with his father. But in his mind, his machshava, his motivation was, I know this means so much to my dad, I'm just thinking about you. We're both getting pleasure from this. We're both going to enjoy it. But my main drive is, I want to bring you nachas. I think some of the, the understanding of what could be a contradiction within this one Torah personality, an extreme obsession, avasa Torah, I love Torah, but I also have this overwhelming avasa Torah, I love people. And I have an intensity and hasmod and diligence in learning. But I also have this calm and, and serene attitude. Some of these things may be a dichotomy, but if it's all coming from this shorish, it's coming from this root, where it's nira a love, I'm just here to do the right thing. In Shanghai, the host of Rav Chaim Shmulevitz loves schmoozing about the most random things. And Rav Chaim would go on walks with this person, sometimes for over an hour, and talk about absolutely nothing. And his Talmidim would ask now and again, how do you do that? That's so against your nature. Your whole life is Torah. And he said, I have so much gratitude for what they're doing for us. What else can I do for him? If I would say, come, let's sit down and learn a Rashba together, he's not going to enjoy that, but he likes to schmooze, so we'll schmooze together. When it's coming from that, that clarity, that 2020 vision of, I just want to do the Ratzon Habore, the will of God, that's what I'm here for, then none of these things are a contradiction. They can all work together in a beautiful, magnificent way. We should be Zoha to take a little bit, just like Yaakov Avinu Lomais, all of the tzaddik in the Ramban says, they never die. And the more we could incorporate and implement some of these ideas and midos and learning and our Bein Adam Lechavera relationships into our own lives, we should be zochah to see great things. Have a wonderful Shabbos.